Hello everyone, welcome to another Quaret Masterclass. Today we're going to talk about how to build a winning corporate culture. Today we have with us, as you know, Alex Dilme. He's like the, the head of purpose, uh, culture and strategy in GB Foods. And we have uh, Mikel here, who, he's the global head of people experience and remote culture in the African Leadership Group. So, and myself, as you know, I'm Tony Jimeno. I help companies to communicate how it's working in their company and how is their culture in order to uh, attract the best talent. So today we want to do a masterclass. As you know, we do like a 30 minute pill, which today Alex will, will be showing uh, different examples of different companies, Airbnb, Facebook, Amazon, how they implemented, how they change, how they live. And he will be giving like really practical uh, tips and, and how to uh, implement or improve our culture in our company. So before we start, uh, please, you can comment if you are in, in YouTube, please, you can use the chat and comment. You can share with us if you find out about another company that we, didn't, we don't mention that is really cool to, to look at it. Or if you are implementing this kind of stuff in, in your company, or if you have any questions about how to do the different stuff that Alex or afterwards, Mickey and I were sharing. And, and also you, you can like subscribe uh, if you are watching us on, on LinkedIn, you can subscribe on our website, getquiet.com uh, to receive a written summary of, of this talk and to receive like a, an email, just one email, uh, letting you know from the, the next uh, Quiet Master classes that we do every, uh, every two weeks. So we're gonna start right, right in. Uh, so we're gonna be sharing our framework. I think Mickey will introduce uh, the framework of Quaret, which is like the how we kind of see the, the whole process of from building uh, the company's purpose culture until we get like employees that feel like owners. So I'm going to be sharing the screen right now. So Mickey. <laughs> Hello everybody. How are you feeling today? Glad to be back with you guys. Um, so yeah, just to give you a quick hint, uh, a refresher on our framework. As you know, Quiet is a movement, is a community, and we seek to, you know, improve um, the world of work. And we figured that uh, the best way to do that is by giving ownership to people. Um, you know, people today work for companies, and there's like a, a separation between their lives, uh, in their personal lives, and the companies and their work lives. And and one of the reasons why is because they don't feel ownership of their work life so how can we give them ownership how can we make them feel like the owners of the company so that they feel like that and then they act like that and not just for their own sake but for the sake of their companies and hopefully uh, for the sake of society as well so uh, as you know there's three steps to achieving that first as companies we need to do what we call owner discovery we need to um, do a introspective session and understand who we are why we came into this world What's our reason for being, for existing, and discovering our meaning, our purpose, our um, values, the capabilities that we need in our company to succeed, etc. So that's the discovery stage. Then once we know who we are, we, we need to attract people who can have success in this context uh, of our company, which for company A might be a type of people, for company B might be another type of people. And then finally, there's the owner's management. Once you attract the right people that can have success in your company, you need to set up the stage for them to actually be able to have this success, um, enable them to shine, to grow, to learn, to have this empowerment and this freedom to go out there and have, a, have an impact. Um, 
And finally, if we do all these little things, we will have owners who move the needle for us and our organizations and who move the needle for our society as well. And now, taking a couple steps back, so where are we today? Today we're here to talk about one of the most important steps um, of the framework, and we're going to discuss one of the most important steps within the owner discovery stage. This is how do you actually understand who is your talent, what is the type of capabilities that you need in your company to succeed, what values do you need in the people that join your company to actually get to the place where you want to get, and in short, how to actually create that culture and then sustain it in time, in time and, and, and help it scale um, so that you can actually reach your goals. Um, and without further ado, Alex, tell us how to build a winning, comp, uh, a winning culture, or how I like to say it, how to not fuck up our culture as we scale. Fantastic, Alex, the floor is all yours. Excellent. So thank you very much, Miki, for this uh, wonderful introduction. Actually, as you were saying, we call it um, Get Fit. And why do we call it Get Fit? At the end, if you think about it, we like a lot the definition of what fit means, which is of suitable quality standard or type to meet the required purpose. That's actually what we believe a company is. At, at Quiet, we fundamentally believe that the goal of a company is to achieve its purpose, right? To have a positive impact in society. And at the same time, we also believe that the company is the group of people actually achieving things. And there's not bad, good or bad people. There's the right fit or the wrong fit of people to help you achieve that specific purpose. And in terms of fit, as, as Miki was now saying, we do think that there are two sides of it. And today we're gonna to focus on just one. There's the left side of the brain, which is more the, the logical one, the analytical one, which is having finding the right skills. We call it core capabilities. You need to understand as a company what are the three, four things that you do way better than your competitors. And then on the other side, equally important is more the intuition side, what people do actually without even noticing what's deeply rooted into them, which are the skills, which is um, sorry, which are the values which all together transforms into the culture. This is what fit means for us. If you have the right people with the right capabilities and the right values, we're completely sure that you'll be able at the end of the day to succeed in achieving your purpose. So with that said, we wanna start actually by, and, and today's session is gonna focus on the culture side of it, on the value side of it. And, and we wanna start actually by understanding why we do believe that culture is so important. Culture is this intangible thing that not everybody fully grasps or fully understands. And we do believe that it's extremely, extremely important that actually having the right values and having the right culture can actually make or break your business. And let's take an example. We'll take the example of, of um, Starbucks. Think about Starbucks, okay? Starbucks is at the end is a $25 billion more or less revenue company that if you think about it sells $3 coffees, okay? So that means that at the end of the day, they need to sell more or less $8 billion coffees. And let me ask you a question. What makes Starbucks su successful? And, and let's use the analogy of, I'm, not sure, I'm sure you heard that quote about culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I'm gonna ask you the question, what is more important? Is it actually strategy, the big choices, or is actually culture, the small choices? And let, let me give you a couple of examples. What makes Starbucks successful? Is it the layout of the store, the type of store, the position of the store, or the coffee supply chain model that they use? Is that what makes Starbucks great? Or is it the fact that you actually, when you go into the store, you know, you get that comfort because people call you by your name, 
because you know the people there smile at you because there's this beautiful atmosphere with music, cleanliness, and in every Starbucks that you go, you find this. What makes Starbucks so successful? And you can say it's probably both, right? It's actually a very well-crafted strategy with a very well-executed culture. But think twice again. Take about Costa Coffee. Now, it's this, this, at least here in Spain, we have a, a more of a low-cost competitor called Costa Coffee. They have the same stores. They probably have the same coffee supply chain model. But you go to the stores and it's not the same. So the end, what stands out is this culture, is these small actions, these small things, this feeling, this atmosphere. So at the end, we do believe that both culture and strategy are intertwined, are both extremely, extremely important. But if we have to pick one, we would talk about culture. Think about culture, about what people do when nobody's looking. We like this definition. Culture at the end of the day is what people do when nobody's looking. Is what at the end, as a company, you can control a certain amount of things. But if you want to be successful, you need to make sure at the end of the day that people are aligned in what we do, in how we do what we do. So we like a lot of this culture because at the end, culture is the set of beliefs, the set of systems that are behind people, you know, that um, that at the end function with our intuitive mind and at the end help us achieve our goals. So with no further ado, now that we understand why we do believe that culture and values are so, so important, I think it's time to understand essentially how do you build this winning culture? And we do believe in this three-step process. The first one is you need to define what does a winning culture mean to you? What are the values that actually will make or break your company? The second step is embedded in the organization, you know, throughout all the processes. And we'll see here the three key processes that you need to tackle. And the last bit of it is, we do believe that culture at the end of the day is um, the, the way to change or build values, these automatic, you know, responses to certain stimulus. Um, you need to do a thousand things a thousand times. So we're going to be talking today about a few hacks. Actually, we're going to talk about six hacks that will help you accelerate that deployment and change the mindsets and the beliefs and the values of the people in your company. So let's start with the first step, the definition. This is probably one of the most overlooked sides of actually a culture. A lot of people, you know, try to implement certain values, but do not think strategically. Oh, that's what we've seen in our experience. That do not think strategically, strategically about the values. Netflix is probably one of the few companies, and there's this, the Netflix culture deck that is extremely famous, that really thought strategically about their culture. And we love this definition about their CEO, that essentially values are what they value. So values at the end are the elements to define the culture. And they say values are what we value. Take this and let's go to the next slide. Um, and actually, take this as what you should not be doing as a company. So if as a company you have things like this, like this as your values, it's probably that you haven't thought about how to create value from a cultural perspective into your business. You know, all these companies that have, yeah, we're mission-driven, yeah, transparency is the best, yeah, accountability, agility, drive for results, excellence. I'm sure that you can, you know, think twice about those values and I'm sure you can find something more strategic to it. So let's look at an example that I particularly admire. We said at the beginning, right, that we need to find the right fit, that we need to define values that actually bring value to our business and at the end that will make our purpose, you know, successful. This is the example of Decathlon. Decathlon has one purpose that is, that is about making sport accessible to the many. And essentially, they bring value to consumers. If you think about going and shopping in a Decathlon, why do you go there, right? Why would you buy a Decathlon and not Nike or any other of them or their competitors? It's because they have low prices, because their products are actually 
um, technically really good because they innovate, right? They always take uh, or bring about new stuff that make um, your life or, or you playing sports easier or better. And because you go into a Decathlon store and at the end of the day, you find every single sport. This is how Decathlon brings value to the world. And this is how Decathlon at the end of the day lives their purpose and is capable of inspiring and actually activating their purpose. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is once you have huge clarity on your purpose, it's like, what things should we value from our employees that actually will make our culture, our, sorry, our business much better and much stronger? So let's look at these two, that are two values that Decathlon has. The first one is, and let me start with the second one. The second one is responsibility. Think about it. You want to create a culture that is capable of, the, of delivering great products at very low prices, right? So you need to be extremely, extremely, extremely efficient and careful in how you spend your money, right? You need to be extremely good at cost efficiencies. So the value that the Decathlon needs to have is a value around responsibility. People need to you know, use their resources very, very efficiently. They need to be very, very responsible in the way they spend their money. Obviously, again, there's a strategy probably in terms of you know, finding good suppliers and stuff like that to make sure the costs are low. But in the daily actions, when one person, I don't know, in the purchasing department is making a decision, if that person you know, thinks twice or finds a way to operate smoothlier or in a, in a more cost-efficient way, that will make the company a better place. And imagine that multiplied by the 10,000 people that Decathlon has. So it's these small acts of responsibility that will make their business you know, extremely competitive and actually able to deliver on this combination of low prices and technical products. Right? This is the type of link that we're trying to generate between culture and actually your purpose, between defining values that actually create a lot, a huge amount of value for your business. And this is the exercise that we encourage you all to do. It's like, what values bring value to my business? What values you know, bring additional or will make my purpose even stronger? And let me tell you that. It's very, very easy to copy certain strategies, but it's extremely hard to copy a culture. It's so hard to build it. It's so hard to sustain it that, you know, your competitors might think, okay, yeah, I'm going to copy, uh, in the case of Starbucks, I'm going to copy the layout. Or in the case of Decathlon, I'm going to launch the same product that they launch. Okay, you're going to copy them once or twice, but you're not going to be able to copy all the system of beliefs that actually make this innovation, you know, sustainable over time or the culture of responsibility that makes Decathlon such a powerful company. This is what's so key. And this is what do we believe that should be the lenses through which we should look at our values. Continuing into that, um, let's look at another example from the startup world. Um, this is the example of Uber. And this is the CEO, Travis Kalanick. Travis Kalanick, I think, was ousted from um, Uber a couple of years back. And look at the values that he himself, and actually the story is famous, sort of defined when he created Uber. Customer obsession, champion's mindset, meritocracy, and toe-stepping. Toe-stepping, yeah, that's a huge word. Always be hustling and principled confrontation. Those values, if you think about it, are extremely aggressive. Extremely aggressive. Imagine working in a company like that. Everybody would be like rock stars. We need to you know, um, compete with each other. We need to conquer the world. This is extremely, extremely aggressive business minds. But think about what Uber was in front of. Think about what Uber was trying to accomplish. Was trying to completely revolutionize an industry that had been there, which was the taxi industry, for many, many years. You know, Uber, to succeed, they had to go into courts, fight all the, all the taxi strikes, and so on and so forth. So Travis, 
very smartly created a culture of, that was strong enough to be able to confront all the hassles that they would be facing. So that's, again, a very smart way to define a culture because he was very aware of how he would create you know, value as a business and he needed to create a culture that was you know, very, very tough and very, very resilient. However, this culture some time afterwards became inoperative. There were all these cases of people harassing each other at work. There were all these cases actually of going too far against the, the laws or the legal systems. Hanover started becoming a, a place where nobody wanted to be because again, of this, aggress of this aggressiveness. So you need to understand that whenever you build a culture, there are trade-offs. So it might be great for your business, but you need to understand that if you put something like two-toe-stepping, that will have negative consequences on the way people work with each other. So at Uber, when they started becoming bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger, actually the first thing when they replaced Travis as a CEO, they changed their values. They understood that they needed to change their culture. And as, as a big company now, they could not be operating with this aggressiveness. And they started having, let's say, more soft values like we need to act like owners, we need to do the right thing, compare doing the right thing um, with toe-stepping, right? So this is how you actually need to understand that you, there are trade-offs on your culture and you need to always be thinking on what is the right culture for the right time of your business. Let me use another, another example because I think the trade-offs side of it is extremely, extremely important to understand. You need to understand that there's no right or wrong value. I said, sorry, there's no good or bad value. This might be a right or wrong value in a certain period of time for a specific company. So again, Facebook, when they started, they had this cool sort of mojo of, you know, the, the, the Silicon Valley side that was, you know, we need to move fast and break things. We need to bring a revolution to the world and all, and all this kind of stuff. This was great. Again, you know, you need to operate. If, you're, if your goal is to create new solutions to improve your product every day, you need to move fast and you need to be willing to break things and make mistakes, right? What happened? Some years later, you know, when Facebook became the B month that is that is today, they they actually committed or they actually made one mistake that cost them a lot of money. It was actually when they moved to the to the video, you know, in the in the Facebook world when they started with uh, showing videos that played automatically. What happened is that they built the algorithm so damn fast that it it calculated um, in a in a so mistakenly the number of views that the, that the video would have. So they would say that the post with videos would have way, way more views than a post with just, you know, a writing or, or certain news. What happened is that because Facebook was so big at the time, the editing companies, the news companies started firing, you know, the writers and they started hiring only video producers. So imagine at such a scale, Facebook, you know, would have, um, would make, or would have the power, a mistake would have the power to completely reshape a media organization. So they understood that because of the size they had, they could not longer afford to make mistakes with their infrastructure. And actually, some years later, what happened is that Mark Zuckerberg, you know, went off with, or they changed the value and they said, okay, we should not, we should stop breaking things and we need to keep moving fast, but we need to make sure that we have a stable infrastructure. This is a real case, it's actually very funny, but it's a, it's a real case. So let me finish with that. If you're a company, you need to understand what trade-offs your values have. So you might be saying, yeah, I want to be excellent, but probably you cannot be excellent at the same time that you're completely agile. Because if you care for the latest detail, you know, you will not be, uh, you will not move fast enough. So you need to understand what are the different trade-offs. Again, so closing up this chapter of definition, it's very, very important to understand what values add value to the business and what are the trade-offs in the values you select? What is the dark side of the value? And there is always a dark side. There's always a trade-off 
that you will be making for your business. So at this stage, you should already have you know, values that actually craft value for your business, values that you actually understand very well the, the trade-offs. So it's, it's the moment to, okay, let's bring the values to life, right? The first step is what I call it embedded, is you need to make sure that in the key process of the organization, the values are there. It's, it's probably the simpler part of it, but um, there's a couple of things that are really, really important. The first one is, well, we need to make, again, the values and the culture relevant across every step of the organization. And the first, the, probably the most, the most important one and the one that everybody's most familiar with is you need to put them in every single HR process, right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think everybody knows about it. And in, in subsequent um, quiet uh, masterclasses, we're going to be talking about them. But obviously, you need to put your values in your um, career page so as to attract people that are, you know, that have uh, the right fit, as we were talking at the beginning. You need to make sure that in the hiring, and I will see one example, you include, you know, certain questions that make you or help you address whether or, or answer whether that person is the right you know, cultural fit for you. Same for onboarding. Again, you need to make sure that in the performance review, you not only talk about skills, but you also talk about the values and you make sure that people are actually de um, developing on the values. And there's many different ways here to do that. Um, but again, today we don't have um, a lot of time for it. And last, obviously, development. Make sure that you have ways to develop your people and your values, okay? You can, you can have videos, you can have trainings, you can have mentors, you can have coaches, whatever, but make sure that you embed the values in each, in each part of the process. And you can get very creative. This is an example of, of Zappos in the hiring in the hiring process where they, you know, this, this company was really, 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 really careful on the cultural fit. And this is, for example, I have this value called create fun and a little weirdness, right? So how would they assess this in an interview? So there's actually, I'm just going to stop on the, on the first one. Um, usually when these people were interviewing, they would bring people from other states in the United States and they would, um, you know, get somebody to pick up that person on the airport. What that person did not know is that the taxi driver were actually an employee from Zappos that was, you know, um, assessing whether that person was fun or not. So they would entangle in a conversation, a taxi driver would start making jokes. And if the person was not fun, that was already part of the process. But again, these are creative ways to actually see whether, you know, the person that you are interviewing, that you're trying to get into the company is the right cultural fit. There's, again, many different ways. This is just an example. But the point here is make sure that you include your values in every single HR process of your organization. Second part of it, again, part of the embedded, part of making sure that the values are relevant for your organization and that they're in the embedded in the organization. The second part is you need to embrace management. This is, I cannot understate how important, uh, overstate how important this is. It's critical that your leaders, especially the top ones, the top people in your organization, embrace values, talk about values, um, act with the specific behaviors that are defined, and so on and so forth. Here, there's just a few ways to do that. The most effective one, again, but the most expensive and the most time-consuming one is coaching. <laughs> for the C-suite of your company, or even for your top managers, it's to me, it's key that you coach them, that you tell them, because for some of them, or my experience is that for some of them, it's very, very hard to start operating in a different way. Even though they understand it, even though they know, it's hard for them to change. So having regular coaching sessions with them is probably the most important important one. Group sessions are also key. 
at the end of the day, putting them all together and making them public commitments is extremely important. Getting into public accountability. So if you can get your CEO or any of your top managers to go into public and saying, yeah, we're really purpose driven, sorry, values driven company. This is my favorite value and so on and so forth. That will put responsibility in them into delivering them, into delivering those values. So getting public accountability really works. And the last one is something that we also created in my company is what we call playbooks, but it's essentially developing, you know, 10, 15 pages um, summaries where people actually, um, you know, have different ways to live their values, do's and don'ts, have examples. That at the end, you know, people, it's not only about the definition, it's not only about the specific behavior, but it's also about, you know, telling stories that people can actually relate to. And last but not least, um, you need to embrace, sorry, you need to embrace the values in your communication. And um, it's really, really, really important that once you define a new culture, a new values, you put them in as many places as possible. I, 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 lo I love the part of making a very, very strong kickoff. This is extremely, extremely important, making sure that everybody understands that this is very important. Like you would do for any sales product, the same you need to do for your values. You need to make sure that you enable peer-to-peer -peer communication. So you need to have platforms that are not only email so that people can actually say, hey, look, the other day I was with this project and we leave this value. This helps a lot. People actually understand that the values are important. Obviously, in town halls, obviously, you need to make sure that your management explains decisions based on the values. We made that decision because it's very important for us to be and to leave this value. These are the type of things that you need to make sure that appear in your ongoing communication. But at the end, the bottom line is, Put your values in every single part of your organization. From the HR processes, make sure that your leaders and your management take them and, of course, put them into all the communication pieces. At the end, if you do this, you'll get, you know, a few people like these red dots, the quieted color dots are people that are actually aligned. But my experience is that the classical things that I just explained you will only get you that far. There will be still a lot of people that will be misaligned, that will be skeptical, etc. And these people is, I like this quote from Simon Sinek, right? These people have their own culture. It's not that I have a culture and I have a culture. There is a culture in your organization. What you're trying to do is change it. And changing is hard. So again, by applying HR processes or management or communication, you're just going to change a certain bit. You need to do much more at the end to try to reach a point where 90%, 95% of the people are actually very much aligned with your values. That's your key. I always picture it like that. Think about it. You have, I don't know how many people in your organization, How? what is the percentage of people that are, let's say, fully complying your values? I think it about like these dots. Okay, how many do I have today? Obviously, you need to measure it. And this is one of the things that we're going to discuss now. So let's get to the last bit, accelerating your culture. Um, this is, I can understand, understate how important this is. What do companies do to accelerate culture that, again, is extremely wrong? Um, you know, they create t-shirts. They get, you know, coffee mugs with their name and uh, with the values and stuff. Again, needless to say, this doesn't work. You need to get more creative than that. You need to get go a little, a little farther. What do we do? Um, at the end, we 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 tend to think, or I like to think that to change. Again, remember that we're trying to change people's beliefs. We're trying to change people's values and make them, you know, act in a different way from um, where they were acting before to make sure they're aligned and we have a, a cohesive culture that brings value our purpose. I like to think that to do this, you need to do 1,000 things 1,000 times. Think about it, how people quit um, smoking. They quit smoking either because, you know, somebody close to them 
got a certain disease um, because of, of smoking or because um, and then obviously you get an emotional impact or because they've seen in their, you know, in their in their packages, in their in their tobacco packages that smoking kills, smoking kills, smoking kills. When you get 1000 of these impacts, it's easier for you to be convinced to change a specific behavior. Same thing applies for culture. These are six nudges that now we're going to briefly explain that will help you accelerate that culture. will help, you know, do these 1000 things. 1,000 times. Before we start, um, allow me to play a quick video about um, nudge theory, which is essentially what we're trying to do here, which is changing people's behaviors. Okay, so sorry for the slight delay in, in coming back. So essentially what we're trying to do here is we're trying to build nudges. Nudges is like these stairs. You know, you tweak a small thing and then people, you know, instead of doing what they were doing always, which is taking the electric stairs, they start taking, you know, doing something else, which is taking the normal stairs. Um, we're going to be talking about six different nudges here. Okay, and let's focus, let's go one by one. The first one is the power of stories, or you need to be able to tell stories. People don't remember theory. People, again, let me repeat this. People will not remember saying our value of ownership means acting with excellence and doing the right thing. Yeah, people will not remember that. It's impossible for people to remember these things. It's not exciting, it's not sexy, and so on and so forth. This is the example of Airbnb. Airbnb, as you can see here, these are the four values that they, that they have. And they have one value that is called be a serial entrepreneur. Serial, obviously, with a C as per serial. And you might wonder, why is this, right? So essentially, long story short, what happened is that Airbnb in its early days were about to you know, go bankrupt. No cash, no money, no anything. And the two founders, what they did was create the two serials that you can, you can see here. <laughs> you know, um, it was around the election date where Obama was competing against McCain. And they created these serial packages. And that allowed them, I think, to collect around $25,000 that allowed them to survive and at the end, you know, uh, bring Airbnb to what it is today. This is a story that 
these guys have and that everybody remembers and that everybody can relate to when they're trying to define when they're trying to live their values is like you need to act like they acted you need to have this creativity you need to act you need to have this courage to do things and that's the value of becoming a serial entrepreneur it's much easier to remember this than to remember yeah um become a serial entrepreneur is about you know uh, taking challenges no that doesn't work that doesn't work create stories people remember stories and people can relate to the stories and then mimic their behaviors towards them another way to create stories um is by creating a culture book this is the example of of Zappos. and um and the video will not play with any audio, um, but just so you see it. Um, but at the end, you can create a culture book. Some people call it playbooks, some people call it other things. But at the end of the day, it's like a way to create personal stories, you know, intra-company stories, to set up, um, to put the emotions that values relate to, to explain the events, to explain, you know, real case examples of how these values bring value to your business, to explain why you designed the office. So at the end, it's a book that people can relate to, that people can read and get a deep understanding um of of what the culture of your company means this example again is very very useful it's hard to do this one is harder to do than actually to create a single story but it's extremely useful because again having only a definition of a value having only a definition of specific behaviors is not enough people need more people need to understand the full context of things so again try to tell stories that you know embrace your culture okay Another notch is what we call, um, and actually this comes from a book, um, I think from Ben Horowitz, which is what we do, um, is who we are. And he talks about creating shocking rules. This is again, extremely useful um, to again, replicate and make sure people understand your values. Let me just give a couple of examples. So this was the New York Giants, you know, the baseball team. And there was this new trainer that was trying to bring on a culture of discipline. You know, the, 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 all, the, all the players would always come in late to the training. They would never listen and so on and so forth. So he put this stupid rule, this strange rule that being on time is being five minutes early. People were like, man, being on time is being on time. It's not, by, it's not being five minutes early. Every time a player would, you know, come in on time, he would start yelling at them. And he would put a fine. I don't know it was a $100 fine or something. You know, these people are wealthy. And at the end, people start wondering, Why? why being on time is being five minutes early and when people start asking why they start having conversations around values and we start having, having conversations around values people start thinking about the values and they start understanding what is the culture that you're trying to build right again amazon amazon does not allow to have powerpoints into their meetings they always operate with this memo style sort of thing because why because they have this value called dive deep. So you get into Amazon, and the first thing I tell you is like, forget PowerPoints, forget PowerPoints. We're not gonna use PowerPoints here. And it's like, why? Why we don't use PowerPoint? It's way, you know, I always use them, blah, blah, blah. And then people can explain, it's because here we're in a culture of diving deep. So when people start asking why, when you create these rules that are very shocking to people and different from everybody they heard, you start signaling what your culture is about. So it's really, really important, or it's another hack is to create shocking rules. One last example that I particularly love about checking rules is Amazon. In its early days, Amazon, remember, they have this culture of being extremely efficient, being customer obsessed, and so on, and being able to deliver very affordable products to everybody. So they basically figured out that by having doors was as tables was cheaper than actually buying tables. So as you can see here, Jeff Bezos, um, and you can see it slightly on the image, this is not a table, this is a door. <laughs> so essentially, they started you know, building all the tables with Door. So people would go into the company and the company's like, we have money now. Why do we need to keep using doors as tables? And he was like, look, this is again a signaling of the culture we want to be here. If there is a cheaper way to do things, we need to do it. And again, it's another way to sign the type of culture and for people to ask, like, why do we use doors? 
right? And at the end of the day, you create this culture of being efficient. One last thing, oh, sorry, a couple more things. This is probably the most important one. You need to decentralize the culture. This is not a hack, this is a deep thing. But again, to be able to do 1,000 things 1,000 times, each of the person needs to understand their role. HR is the facilitator of culture. The CEO, the founder, or every manager is the responsible of the culture of their teams. And then you have what there is, or what I like to call, and I find this the most important initiative you can have is, you need to have uh, ambassadors, cultural ambassadors that allow you to do certain nudges. Going into the ambassadors thing, is, and I strongly recommend this to you, is launch an ambassadors program. Essentially what an ambassadors program is, is you basically need to make your culture extremely sexy. You need to tell people, participate in this and you will generate, uh, this is my experience, you will generate a very positive impact. Gather 50, well, depends on the size of the company, but gather between three and 5% of your employees and make them, well, make them, hopefully, there will be volunteers um, of the cultural change. Make them the culture owners in a way. Obviously, the managers and the CEO are the real owners, but these people are also owners of the culture, owners of activating the culture, of making these small initiatives, these small nudges. You need to train them on nudge theory, on these small actions that you can do so that people can actually you know, think about um, or make them think about the change, the specific behaviors they have, okay? And you need to reward them and connect them. Make sure you build a community of ambassadors so they keep motivating themselves. For example, in my company, people from Belgium might say, hey, look, we've done this. And then people in Italy would be like, wow, this is awesome. Let me also do it in Italy. Again, there's small initiatives. Train them on what type of initiatives they might be doing. This will depend a lot on the culture. But have an ambassadors program. This is key. Decentralizing the culture, taking it away from, from HR, actually HR facilitating all this, empowering people to do more is absolutely key because that's the only way to do a lot of things a lot of times, 1,000 things, 1,000 times. Last, almost last thing. It's very, very important to measure culture. Um, my understanding is that a lot of companies, what they do is they launch this generic climate survey every two years and instead they compare sales on a daily basis. It's like, if culture and people are so important, why do you only measure it every two years? I'm not gonna say to, for, to you to measure it every month. That's probably too much, and then you, you don't have enough time to react and change and so on and so forth. But at least measure your culture, measure your values every six months. Have value-specific questions. Don't take the generic um, you know, culture, uh, sorry, climate survey type of questions and just drop the organization. No, make sure that if one of your values is ownership, that you have questions that actually allow you to understand whether people are living with ownership or not in your company and very important and that's very obvious but measure each area so i'm sure that your finance department will have a different set of values than your um, area of marketing and so on and so forth especially if you're living in different you have different locations different geographies it's very very important to measure each of them because there's this person for example in our case we have one value called joy and people in Africa live in naturally. It's natural for the people, um, but people in Germany, you know, it's tougher for them because their their natural culture, the natural German culture, is not so proactive in terms of having fun at work. So it's critical to understand those differences and then activate it differently. Last thing, and Mickey was mentioning before, don't fuck it up. I love this quote about cultures built in drops and lost in buckets. You cannot fuck it up. Make sure that the key decisions of your company can relate to specific values. Make sure that your CEO, when addresses and makes a big decision, relates it to a values. There's a huge amount of skepticals in your company that won't believe that you're doing the right thing and that the, the very minimum mistake you make, they will be you know, telling you, 
Prove them wrong. Care for the details, communicate proactively, but make sure you don't fuck it up. This is the most important thing. Don't make stupid mistakes in culture, because again, it's very hard to build and very easy to destroy. So closing up and wrapping up, and I'm excited about the dialogue we're gonna, we're gonna have now. How do you build a winning culture? The first thing is you need to define it very well. And remember, values are what you value. The second bit is make it relevant to organization, embed it in every single process from HR to the management to communication, bring your values there. And the last bit is try to accelerate it. There's all these hacks that we spoke about today and think about doing 1,000 things 1,000 times. You know, decentralize and uh, you know, do all these all these hacks about shocking rules and so on and so forth. There's th very different ways where you can actually accelerate your culture. Okay, so um, I think we're we're good to go. So I'm gonna give it back to to Tony. Thank you very much, Alex. Um, it's been like super super cool. I have like so many questions to ask because. We we kind of touch like different different steps in the in the conversation. Now I'm gonna uh, invite Alex to come here. So um, because you <laughs> you actually you actually explain like the different different areas of the culture, which I find it really interesting because uh, in my area that is more like the communication part. Uh, you touch like super interesting parts about how to communicate it in order to start living it, and and also like how to you implement it with the ambassador program, which I was seeing some comments that people say like super interesting, the ambassadors program as well. I think like it's key to involve your employees in, in everything you do. No, we were talking about this in Mickey's presentation. We were talking about this in, in my presentations two weeks ago about demand recruiting. Now we're talking about this like culture is not uh, an HR job. Hiring is not an HR job. It's like we're seeing that this kind of stuff is not just HR job. We're seeing like a uh, Jeff Bezos, no, to say like, no, this is the way we want to live, or like the or the founders of Airbnb say like, no, that's the culture we believe in. Uh, we are like this. We want to be like this. So we have to make sure as well that the people we hire, like, they keep adding on that culture. Or if we need to do the change, but uh, we we need to add people that goes to the direction that uh, we want to go. Uh, before, like, if you have before I ask you one question that I have. Before we start, like, please, if you want in comments to ask anything in Alex, to share some ideas, please do, because we are like, uh, here's like a, a, a little dialogue that we're gonna have uh, the, the next minutes. So uh, since we don't see you in person, like we have you in the comments, so please ask us anything that we would love to discuss. And my question will be, I, I see these things for companies that are growing and probably it's easier, but like in a company such yours that, you already have a lot of employees uh, in a multinational environment and you start deciding, okay, how do I define my culture? What's the process? Because a lot, a lot of, sometimes like when I have to define my values, I have to define my culture. It's like, what will be like the first steps to, on how to do it? Because then I have like uh, communicated, accelerated, but the very first, like, how do I know about what we value? There's any way, any exercise, anything we can use? Actually, um, yes, that's, I think that's sometimes the most overlooked bit of, of actually culture, which is making sure that your values actually add value to your business, right? What we said with the example of Decathlon. How to do that is both simple and very complicated. But what you I encourage you not to do is to 
um, and that might sound a little harsh, but it's to democratize it. A lot of people, you know, say, yeah, let's bring everybody to the definition of our culture. It's like, do you bring everybody to the definition of your strategy? No, not everybody can, you know, has the whole picture. And it might sound a little harsh, but not everybody can define your culture. It's yeah. such a strategic bit. So I'm sure that whenever you try to have decision making and you involve 20 people in that decision, you end up with a, a compromise sort of solution that doesn't work for anybody, right? So something similar happens with a lot of a lot of um, cultures or when a lot of companies when they're redefining their values mm-hmm. or their culture. It's like, I think they, they take it wrong. They ask too many people and they end up with what we saw before. Yeah, excellence, uh, team building. Uh, yeah, okay, that's very cool, but it's not strategic at all, right? Mm-hmm. So my idea is that this needs to be an effort led um, usually by or the strategy department or the CEO itself that has this broad vision, understands mm-hmm. very well what, what the strategy of the culture is, or the marketing teams that are very close to the consumer and can actually understand why does the consumer, you know, want to buy our products and then you can, you know, define what behaviors will help you get there. And there's several ways we can talk about it later, but you know, there's different workshops, different tools, different stuff. But again, it needs to be a marketing slash strategy slash CEO led exercise um, in order to be able to identify what really what are those specific values that add value to your business. Again, HR can facilitate, but I think HR's role is more than then, you know, making sure that it's embedded in all the people. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be a very, very, very strategical um, exercise here. Because before we go to Mickey, Mickey, if you let me, um, it's like because culture is not just for the people that work in the company. Also, like has an impact in the customers. No, you're saying like marketing has to know the customers, why they buy us, what they value. So it's not just a jar with the people. It's also like the customers that have to share these values or at least believe in. I I like to make a, a difference between values and value, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think some, some people get sometimes get confused here. So, for example, in the case of the Decathlon that we spoke about it, um, people don't buy the Decathlon because the Decathlon has a certain culture. But people buy the Decathlon because the product is cheap. Mm-hmm. But your values are going to allow you to make your products cheap mm-hmm. because you're going to have this culture of extreme efficiency. Another example is IKEA. IKEA has one value that is called cost consciousness. Because, because they, they, they understand that mm-hmm. the people buy their values because... Um, you know, it's actually a cheap, not cheap, an affordable product or affordable product. So one is the one thing is the value you add to consumers, and the other one is the values that allow you to bring that value into the consumers. This link is extremely important. And some people say, yeah, no, but my but my customers need to be cost conscious. Nah, it doesn't make sense. One thing mm-hmm. is how you operate internally, and the other one is why people you know buy your products externally. Fantastic, Mickey. Oh yeah. I was speaking in Spanish even. Um, no, thanks so much. It's been it's been an amazing an amazing pill, and you know I keep learning from from listening to you to you talk about values and culture. So thanks so much. And the only correction that I will do is that the New York Giants are not a baseball team; are a football team. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pass you on that. Um, I have a, a question for you um, around it, some examples of nudges, no? Because we saw that beautiful video on the on how to nudge people to use the spares um, instead of the mechanical ones. Um, and then I was I was reflecting as I saw that, I was like, okay, but what happens, um, because you know you put music into the stairs and then, um, and then people use them. But what if, can you get to the point where you get to an example of like what Pavlov did with the dogs, where you just like then train people to use the stairs 
And then when you stop playing the music as you go up the stairs, because it might not be sustainable to always have music when they use the stairs, and do you feel that the power of these nudges is, is strong enough so that people continue doing the right thing, even after the music stops playing? I think it's a really good question. And you tapped into something that is actually critical and we haven't touched here. So I think nudges are the first step, right? It's like, okay, you start moving people from doing one thing to the one. Then to sustain it, usually what works really, really well is, is rewards recognition programs, right? This is, this is also key. I'm not a big fan of the typical values, awards, and, and all these type of things. I think it's a lot of noise and a lot of work for little reward. I think the best reward here is in two ways. The first one is um, you need to make sure that in the performance reviews, people get actually um, their bonuses in a way or another are tied to their, um, let's say, cultural development. Um, I think for certain startups that they're very natural, maybe they don't need this, but for big companies that are trying these massive culture shifts, this is important. It touches the money, it touches the pockets, and then people actually you know, sustain their behaviors. And the other one, the more soft one, is making sure that leaders actually recognize, managers recognize their, their teams when they're um, actually um, you know, developing or deploying or showing certain values. Um, we spoke about this uh, with you, Mickey, many times, but um, actually getting the leaders into that mood, uh, into that values talking sort of environment is extremely tough, but it's extremely important. <laughs> Um, imagine you, you know, being managed by someone else and you show a certain value and your manager is like, wow, this is great. You need to keep doing this. You need to keep living with this ownership, right? Then it's when you start, you know, um, getting people to go to the stairs without actually listening to the music, without actually listening to the music or, with, or you know, salivating before they even, um, to the analogy of Pavlov's, or Pavlov's dog, um, salivating before they even actually do things. And um, yeah, that's... That's the one thing that I remember from my psychology classes, Pablo. So I was like trying to link it now with the with the behavior of, of people. Tony, please go ahead, and, and then I have another one for you later. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask, yeah, like, can you? Because I know that you in GB Foods had to convince your C level into, or not convince, like walk into that difficult conversation. You say like, oh, it's really difficult. Can you explain us a little bit how how was like the different steps that you took, or how was the conversation that you have? Uh, with your boss or the CEO or the board or whoever you have to convince, how you convince them in order to start looking at values uh, in a strategic way and convincing them that it was worth the effort or it was worth like to put some time into it. Can you like explain us how was the conversation, well, how you kind of convince them? Yeah, to me, there's, there's two steps here. Um, one of them is you need to actually understand um, that... Um, how do I put this? That organizations are already a culture, mm -hmm. right? It's not like that there's nothing and now they start valuing a culture. Maybe there is not a culture that is defined through a certain, maybe the values that you have don't represent the actual culture, but there is a culture. So your CEO is already, you know, um, developing or defining a certain culture. So I understand that it's only natural that there is resistance mm -hmm. at the beginning when, you know, somebody comes and say, you need to destroy this and you need to create these new things. It's, it's natural. It's obvious. And I would do the same. It's like, oh, my company is working. My company is functioning very well. Why should I change? So your change um, argument needs to be very good, needs to be extremely sharp. And then, and that leads me to the second bit. The second bit is, 
you need to talk um, business jargon. You need to, to convince them on the relevance of this. Obviously, the CEO, the C-suit is motivated by obviously, you know, generating a more human culture, generating a values-driven and purpose-driven company. Obviously, nobody wants to go against this. But they're also very much interested in making sure that the business keeps, you know, going well and working well. So it's extremely important that through the, the, the argument I found, at least for me, that was the best was bringing on other companies' examples. Mm -hmm. If you can... If you can, for example, talk about competitors of yours that are doing great things with this, if you can actually, what sometimes is hard for people is to make the link between what we were saying before, value and values, mm -hmm. linking the specific people behaviors to actually driving value for the consumer. So you need to find, you need to help them build this connection. And if another hack is, if you can actually already find um, internal examples of this, if you can find things that are already working, things that are certain values that are already lived and that they're working and they're making your business stronger, more robust, more resilient, that's really good. Because that's when they say, oh, wow, it's easier for them then to make this, this connection. Think about it, the CEO or the CISU has so many things in their heads that actually putting an hour sometimes is tough. So um, you need to help them a lot in, in building those bridges. I need to be very empathetic with them. You know, sometimes like, why didn't do this? Why didn't do that? Okay, try to speak the language, insist. And the last thing is, if there is no resistance, there is no change, right? So it's actually good that they are resisting a little bit because it means that you're changing things because it means that's really the way. So whenever you face issues, whenever you, things are not going your way, don't worry, you're probably going in the right direction. Okay, so we have to be persistent. Exactly. It's key to be persistent. I, I had a question around, um, you know, ideally, like you said, not like, where you're trying to get your mission, your objectives, um, and your strategy should play a big role in, in defining your culture, right? So if you want, I want to go to point B, uh, I will perhaps choose a different culture, um, different than if I want to go to point A or C. Um, and that is very true for like, if I'm trying to decide what capabilities I need in my company, what types of skills I need in my company, like you were saying, so all good there. And, but then if we assume that values are really linked to behaviors and behaviors are in a way what actually take values, which is something that is in a wall and bring it to the day-to-day -day of the company, that's how you land it. Um, how much of your company culture in the value side of things and behavior side of things is defined, unpopular opinion, but <laughs> it's defined by the personality or the character of your CEO. Because in a way I feel that even if I'm trying to go to point, so if I'm trying to go to point A, um, but my CEO is Mark, and if I'm trying to go to point A, but my CEO is Sarah, and Mark and Sarah are really different from each other, and they behave in different ways, can they both find a successful way to get to point A? And my question is, Will the values be different? So different sets of values, they can be to the same place with the same strategy, but having to adapt them because it's coming from a place that's run by very different people. And in my experience, a place, uh, the behaviors of the CEO then cascade into the executive team, then cascade into middle managers, then cascade into the, the whole organization. No? So I know it's not ideal, perhaps, and and sometimes, if, uh, like we saw in Uber, we have to change the CEO. No, that's not work. That's not work. It's not working. But it impacts our values so much 
that you have to take it into account, right? When you're when you're developing your culture um, to suit your strategy. Correct. I, I fully agree. Um, so, like with different companies in the same sector, two companies can be successful with two different, very different playbooks. I don't know Nike and Decathlon. You can say that they all sell um, clothing, right? But um, but they have very different strategies, and therefore they need to have very different cultures. So I, I agree with that. Um, so there's no right or wrong, right? It's what we always say. There's always, um, um, sorry, there's no good or bad. There's right or wrong fit. And this part of the fit, the, obviously the most important person is the CEO. <laughs> and, and I think it can go um, both ways. So whenever you're changing your CEO, you try to hire a CEO that is very much aligned with your culture or the CEO that comes in sort of makes a conscious effort to aligning to your culture. But I agree with you that if the CEO is not aligned with your culture, that's going to be a massive disruption. It's just not going it's probably just not going to work. Right? You need to find ways to align them. Imagine that you're trying to cultivate a culture of ownership and the CEO is the most micromanaging person ever. It's just not going to work because then he's going to micromanage the first layer, the first layer is going to micromanage the second layer, and then ownership all of a sudden disappears, right? So I fully agree with you. I mean, making sure that the CEO or the founder is very much aligned with the culture, not only in the words, as you're saying, or in the specific values, but in the actions, in the day-to-day, is absolutely is absolutely key. Right? So then the advice that we could give to a co- imagine there's a company, somebody is listening to us, and they got a company, they're working for a company, of, I don't know, 50, 100, 150 employees more. Um, and they're like, okay, you know, up to this point or 500, doesn't matter. Up to this point, we didn't care for culture too much. It's just something that happened naturally. And now is it now that we realize that it's so important? What can they, can they do next? Because if, if you tell me, one of the most practical things that you can do is like first ask the question, are you going to go on with your CEO or are you willing to replace him or her? If you're not willing to replace the CEO at this moment as you build a culture, is the more pragmatic thing to do to actually scan your CEO, understand his, his or her personality, and then put that down into values and then behaviors, which translates into a playbook, and boom, you actually, by mapping your CEO, you get a recipe for success. You can nudge a little bit, like you can change a little bit some of the things, but the personality of that CEO is going to, you know, be a great informer of your culture book or playbook, right? And I don't know if that's right or not, but I don't see another way. I 100% agree, 100%. So um, it's a very good way, it's a very good frame to start. And actually, what we said before, right? Companies are a culture. It's not that you built a culture. There's already a culture existing there. So probably that the CEO already has already built that culture because of his or her power. Into the, into the company. So actually by scanning the CEO, you probably get a good understanding of what the company is about. I recommend to do this if and only if the company is successful, both in terms of business and let's say humanity, right? So if employees are happy and, um, and you know, have the right, you're doing the right thing with your people and you're doing the right thing with your business and everybody's successful and you have this win-win, yes, just crystallize whatever is going on Put it there in words so it's easier and, and actions so it's easier for people, you know, to then understand it. And whenever somebody joins, like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we behave. Just, you know, try to be as compliant to this as possible. And you'll have fun and will be very successful. And Alex, 
is a is an easy way to, to start mapping. You can map that, and then it, you know you can create a call, a culture playbook. But then it can be difficult to then change the behavior of let's say 500 people. But let's say that your pool of managers is 100 people, or it's I don't know even less. Um, is it easier? Since kind of like we agreed that behaviors and values cascade down, is it easier to invest in a manager playbook so that managers have a guide on how to behave and on how to lead, and by them doing that on a certain way, then this will automatically come down. So you don't have to attack the 500; you have to address the 100, and then you just wait for it to cascade. Um, that's a very good question, um, and I want to bring it one level farther, <laughs> which is. Do you need different behaviors um, from your leaders and from the people that are not leaders? My experience is yes. <laughs> so the way you show ownership, if you are, let's say, managed versus you manage people is different, right? One is about, you know, taking responsibility and making sure that, you know, you anticipate problems and blah, blah, blah. And the first one is actually, you know, by giving trust and providing trust to people. So my, my question is, my answer would be yes. Try, but do it as a second step. You cannot start with a new culture and launch you know, behaviors and leadership behaviors and too complex. But in a second step, I would suggest yes. Once you get complex and, and you know, good with your culture, it's good to differentiate the two things and make sure that when people become managers of people, they, they're supposed and they have even more responsibility in transferring that culture. So you need to build up that responsibility and you need to build up awareness on, on how them as leaders should um, behave. So, yep. I want to to like read some comments and also like some questions that the, we have here. So, um, well, Luis was saying on YouTube, you know, when, when it comes to recruitment, that means like to make sure that with people we add in the company uh, fit the, the culture, what they say is like they meet the, the, the candidate, let's say this way, meet the team that will be working in the near future so everybody relax and they can meet so this is already a good practice so Hortensia was saying like he he loves like the who likes a lot the ambassador's program for culture nice so uh hi Hortensia again we did the 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 more, the more recruiting project with them and also <laughs> he was saying like the that for for her like she believes like culture must be defined early giving some space to evolve and change if you're lucky to be in a company that is growing and you can develop this early, like that's fantastic. So then, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. related to link to this, I see that many many companies, even if they grow to to big numbers, even like uh, one thousand people or more, and they tend to invest much more and much earlier into talent acquisition than than people experience and experience and culture. So if you talk to them, they always invest in that first. But not just right at the beginning, they extend it. So they can be like one, two, five years, and they're still investing heavily on talent acquisition. And then just a little bit or nothing, there's nobody, you can find that there's nobody responsible for culture, for people experience. And I will ask people and companies to reflect about this. This is the same as if I have a huge marketing department with a lot of budget for marketing, and then I have no one on customer success or customer experience. And remember that rule that everybody knows that it's easier and cheaper to keep a customer than to gain a new one. Well, for employees, it's exactly the same. So whoever is in a company where there's far more people and budget for that acquisition compared to um, people experience and culture, raise a flag 
we're doing some, we're doing something that's not smart, that's not efficient. Yeah, and I think yeah. that I was having the conversation the other day about this is that okay, if you start like having a you're hiring a HR person and it's the first person, and it's like you go hiding and just like let them do interviews and like the culture that you gotta build is a lottery. Because if you bring a person with one with a set of values, that will start affecting the other people's values in some way. If you start give, putting more people that, yeah, on paper or on the experience or the skills they need, they are they are a match, but you don't take care or you don't make sure, like you are changing your culture. And, and when we were together in Talent Club, we, we saw this. Like uh, we, when we started like, hiring people that they were really good, that uh, they, they were really good on their job, but we start like by hiring them, they, our company was, our company culture was changing, our behavior was changing, our rituals were changing. Like the, the departments kind of started splitting because we we lost that personality and we had to kind of start firing people to go back smaller and say, okay, if we want to grow, we need to grow in a more stable way and making sure that the people join, join and knowing and matching or adding in the culture we want to build and not just like a lottery of people and finding the best, but the best of their job, but not the best for, for your culture. No, is uh, I think that's really important so as well. Is, here, is what you were saying, to put a number to what you're saying, is that the cost of hiring bad culture fits was 100 million for Zappos, which is the example that yeah. uh, we're talking uh, about. So he was saying, you make a bad hire, they make more bad hires, it snowballs, and by the time you want to stop it, this is like so costly for the organization. Like it, it, it it's like don't fuck up the culture. Yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> and we have a question from Anna Exposito. She is asking us, what will, what should we prioritize in a culture transformation process with a big corporate company that isn't in the tech industry but needed to get familiar with digital tools and processes in a remote work? And she's adding without causing disengagement or confusion with the change, especially if the senior and the executive have been working with our company culture for so many years. Let me start with question, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is extremely tough. Let me start and then I'll, I'll roll with you, Miki, because you're the expert in, in remote. Um, my experience here is that you need to try, so you need to try to, still fit the 1000 things 1000 time mindset but you know in a in a in a very different way and obviously there's the remote environment um is challenging you in many ways in terms of you know deploying the culture it's not the same you know having face-to-face -face conversations seeing each other every day bumping into each other having the the culture built through this your spaces in the office and stuff um than actually being alone at home it, it's probably much harder but on the other side, digital, especially for big companies, allows you to do a lot of things that you couldn't do before. You know, it's super easy now to set up an online town hall from the CEO every week. You know, you get on all, all of you into teams and you do it. You know, um, there's, there's very now, for example, now when you there's very easy ways to connect with each other. Companies had sped up a lot all the communication process. You probably need to invest a little bit in tools here. Right. So um, having, for example, in my case, in my company, we have um, teams. Um, we have now Workplace. Workplace is a great success in terms of this, this social network um, for the for the company. So a lot of people can actually share how they're living their values and culture at home. Um, so there's a part of investment in tools. But um, again, it's very important. And last but not least, 
I think it's even more important, more important than ever with the remote environments to have specific conversations with your leaders um, and to make sure that your leaders, you know, make an additional effort in terms of bringing the culture, in terms of staying close with your employees. It doesn't happen automatically as it used to happen before in the office. So you need to make sure that your managers are very aware of this, are very aware of the challenges and are very aware of actually bringing it and making these calls through Teams or through whatever software that, that you might have. Miki, on to you as an expert in remote. Yeah, uh, the problem is that I haven't worked in a, well, in a consultancy, but I haven't worked in a big organization that has like a very traditional way of operating. So that's why I, I think that I'm, I'm less fit here to give an answer. But I think that, um, first of all, you, I would say that remote, um, once you think about it coldly, it's very easy to sell to people. So you're basically telling the person, you're going to be able to work from anywhere you like, adapt your work into your life as opposed to your life into your work, stop commuting. I don't know, we could, we could make a case really quickly on, on how many benefits remote can bring to your life. So I think that that's a, a great starting point, showing people the, the potential benefits. Then if I think about what we did in my, in my organization when we went remote, fully remote, I think that um, first we gave people time. So we didn't go to remote and then next day we expected the same outcomes as the month before. We went to remote and we paused. So it's not that we were not working, but the rhythm was another one. We were in a process of, of adaptation, of change. We were not pushing people to achieve the same results. So we needed that was taking a step back to then take two forward. And so that's very important. And then like you were saying, the tools and the support. Um, if, it, if people are moving to remote, you don't want them to just use the chair that they had in the living room and then put it there and then work like this in their laptops. You want them to be very comfortable. So for instance, our company um, allocated 900 USD, US dollars, um, that every year you can spend on a remote setup. So on your chair, on your desk, on your, so creating your own space to be very efficient and productive. Then as Alex was saying, then you gotta create tools like, okay, it's annoying to do all the meetings online. Well, uh, a big mistake here, I would say, is that if you try to replicate everything that you were doing live or in the office on a remote setup, that's a mistake. You, you should not try to replicate the same things. You should do things sometimes differently. So um, one of the examples here would be like maybe the same meetings that you were doing before, if you bring them all online, then people are going to stop complaining because I'm looking at my screen all day and, you know, online meetings are exhausting. Um, but if you then start bringing tools that allow you to work async, um, then perhaps you can reduce the number of meetings. And then people see that actually by going remotely, they can still communicate well, but they need to do less meetings, so they're happier, no? So, and then you see how async has a lot of, a lot of um, advantages because it's less disruptive with people times and days. They allow for more deep work. If you don't catch something during the live meeting, you don't have to record it. It's there recorded in a loom or an audio note. So. It's about like giving, in my opinion, showing the benefits, giving time, and bringing the right tools, and not try to replicate the same that you had in the office um, remotely. Yeah, and if I can add, like I, I'm, I'm, I was remembering now that when you were explaining this, when I was like in, in Adeco, like doing like this digital transformation, that they were some people were working like with all recruitment techniques and all well, like uh, like their technology, and I was there like to change technology, change methodologies. The first approach I did it was trying to sell to everyone like the idea, like you said, like showing them the benefits, but to everyone. 
And what happened is like people were saying like, yes, yes, that's cool. But at the end, like everybody was was going in into their own thing and they didn't cheat. They didn't change. Now, obviously, like the, the situation forced everyone to change. But the what what were a, what was a success? It was okay. I, we want to implement this this technology. We want to implement these processes. So who wants to volunteer? Or who is motivated? Or or you know who is more motivated? Who is trying to do certain stuff? So I'll suggest Hannah, like you go and 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 go work to, with together with that with that people. So you make them really successful. You make them an ambassador of the project you are trying to implement or the technologies you are trying to implement, and then. You let them. I was. I remember we were like maybe twelve directors. I think they were. I started working just with two directors, and and I made them super successful. They get like better results than before with the technology, with the new processes, and then they the, this, these two people were the one presenting to the rest of the directors the results, how they were working. And I was not teaching. I was not preaching. I was not anymore. I was just watching, and they were the ones kind of selling. The, the project and then more people come and at the, at the end the rest of the, the ones that with Alex with the dots show the, the ones that were skeptical or didn't want to at the end they were like the, the last ones and the laggards that was in the innovation process that at the end they were forced to because everybody was working in this way obviously the, the, this takes time but when you have results when you have examples and when other people like them it's like if you come from the technology it's like oh you Tony you're young and you know technology but I'm super senior but if other senior people, other C levels come and they show you it's possible, then is when everybody is more more open. And I think this approach uh, can help you as well uh, to achieve this. And and so I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. I want to read one comment, one last comment from Manuela that I think is important as well. That I think is I think learn with the example is really important because even if it's the CEO who writes the values but does the opposite, ambivalence is generated. I think this is. I wanted to put this because I, I I live this in first person. I think Mickey too. That we we set up some values and the day after, like the CEO does completely opposite to the value, and then like everybody was like, okay, uh, that's that's fake because we are saying that we want to live by these values, and the very next day you are doing something that is completely opposite to the values. So uh, then it's like don't have any credibility. So I think it's important to be uh, coherent to what you say and if you kind of compromise and communicate that you want to behave this way make sure you behave this way because and at the beginning is key because everybody was going to be watching and super aware of this so uh i think it's all the time but as a ceo i think you have to be even more aware of the values you set up so uh thank you very much thank you to everyone watching uh, even though it's the recording or or live for all your comments uh, thank you, Miki. Thank you, Alex, for uh, the presentation. I think it's worth watching. And also, as we said, like you can send the link to the to the your CEO or to your board, like with the with the peel of Alex, in order to convince them a little bit. Or you can take the examples that Alex was sharing. And and also, I can I can suggest you if you subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, next week, you will receive a written summary with all the examples and everything. That can be a good tool as well. If they <laughs> don't want to watch uh, the video, they, you can uh, you can show them the article that probably they want to uh, they they might want to read it or listen to, on to Spotify because you can. We had also like all these conversations on Spotify and on YouTube. So uh, feel free to to share it to everyone. And yeah, and we will see uh, in two weeks. 
for another Quarant Masterclass. And, and feel, please feel free to reach us, to Mickey, to Alex, to me with any questions, with any suge suggestions of what we can talk about. And yeah, let's let's stay in touch and have a, a, good, a good end of the week. Thank you very much. Take good care.